Greetings. Welcome to In Conversation with Trevor, brought to you by Heart and Soul Broadcasting Services. I go beyond the headlines and beyond the sensational. Today I'm in conversation with Dr. Pastor Matthew Chamunora Wazara, a specialist surgeon. If you enjoy this conversation, remember to subscribe, to like, and share. Let's get down to some work. Pastor Matthew Chamonora Wazara, welcome to In Conversation. <laughs> Thank you very much, uh, Trevor, and good morning. Good morning. I'm so excited. You have no idea. I'm so excited to be sitting with my pastor, to be sitting uh, and having a conversation with a man who has impacted so beautifully in my life, in my wife's life, in my family's life. You are special to us. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, I'm going to start at this interesting place Chamunora, where does it come from? <laughs> What's the story behind Chamunora? Okay, so Chamunora is a name I believe was given to me by my grandmother, my paternal grandmother. And um, it's a name that means why fight or don't fight. And I've uh, uh, interpreted it to mean a man of peace. So there seems to have been a family dynamic that was going on at the time. And my grandmother's position was that she shouldn't fight. And so she said, I'll name this child Chamunorwa. Why fight at all? Mm. And that's, that's where I've got it from. And, and, and the effect of names, I mean, that embodies who you are. Men of peace. <laughs> well, I, uh, <laughs> maybe it was prophetic. <laughs> <laughs> Pastor Wazara, Dr. Wazara, I'm actually, I don't know where to start because you have such an amazing life, a rich life. Um, you are uh, a man of faith. You are my pastor, like I said. You are also in the medical field as a, a specialist surgeon. Very important uh, are callings. Uh, I was reminded on Sunday that uh, Faith Ministries has been in existence for 47 years, mm -hmm. having been started by uh, Alistair Geddes. Yes. Uh, Alistair, is it Alistair Geddes? Alistair Geddes, yeah. that's right. And, and it's still going. And you're doing amazing stuff. But I, I want to know, how did you get to know God? What was your journey? Was it love at first sight or it was like mine? I'll tell you what mine was like. Um, I, 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 I got born again. I, I did some backsliding. Mm -hmm. And then one day, on a Sunday, when I was troubled, uh, Nick Vingirai calls me. And it's on a Sunday. Yeah, I think it was on a Sunday. Nick Vingirai calls me and says, Trevor, God has been speaking to me about you. Mm. Are you okay? Wow. I said, I'm not okay. Yeah. He says, can we meet tomorrow in my office and have breakfast? There began the journey that Back. has now lasted over 23 years. So was yours like that? Was it love at first sight? Did you backslide? <laughs> just just talk, to, talk about that. Thanks, Trevor. So I grew up in uh, quite a strongly Catholic family, both my parents and in fact, my father had been to the seminary to become a priest. And then his mother's illness distracted him. And, uh, and then he met my mom and so on. But we grew up strongly Catholic. And 
when I was 14 years of age in high school, believing that I was a full Christian and you know doing all the all the functions of a of a, of a good Catholic uh, Christian. A friend of ours who was quite an opinion leader in the school and kind of the chief debater, his name was Kevin, Kevin Musarira, just happened on me one day and he said, if you died today, are you sure, I was 14, mm-hmm. are you sure you're going to go to heaven? And I'd never really thought about it. Yeah. And that began two or three days of him explaining that Christianity is not inherited, that you have to make a choice to have a relationship with uh, with Christ. So that was April 1982. And eventually he led us, uh, a few of us actually on the same day, in a prayer, what we call the sinner's prayer, but really of accepting Christ for for ourselves. And mm. that was it. I was, uh, I was 14 years old. Mm. And when you look back at your journey, what have been what have been the low moments your journey with God? What have been the low moments? What have been the highlights? And 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 any any testimonies that stand out there that God did this for me. I mean, God this did this for you. You are sitting in front of me right yeah. now. But any any stuff that stands out in your walk with God, Trevor. I think that um, when you are in high school, you learn. And we we had a good scripture union group. And you learn so much of the things of God. But you don't have to exercise faith. Fees is paid. uh, Food is there. And then when you get to university, then what you believe starts to be tested. Mm. What do you believe about alcohol? What do you believe about girls? What do you believe about politics? What do you believe about this? And, And that was a very tough time to navigate being a Christian and answering all these uh, other questions. And then, and then you finish university and you start to work and you have to balance your own checkbook or to balance your own budget. And then suddenly you have faith. You need to apply faith yeah, because things don't always yeah. uh, add work up. Out. Yeah. So in terms of, um, of lows, I think a big low for me, and I didn't realize God was in it, was when I finished grade seven and I didn't have a place for four months because my father died when I was in grade seven. I didn't have a place. And the place that I found, my mother couldn't afford it. And um, I got a scholarship that saw me through my six years of school. I think that law was dealt with by that high. And in retrospect, I see that it was, uh, it was God. God. Yeah, absolutely. And then um, through uh, university, I always had the question, Why? Did my father die? Why did we grow up under these circumstances? And um, uh, that would always bring me low moments whenever I achieved something Mm. or was a prize giving at school and my father wasn't there or when I got married and my father wasn't there and when I had my firstborn and my father wasn't there. It's I used to always have that question, why me of all these people? Mm. Um, But I learned, you know, with time that God doesn't, uh, ask, doesn't want you to ask why, asks you, what should I do? And um, though your problems are heavy to you, when you listen to everyone else's story, it may be different, but to them it weighs the same. So that sort of brought me um, comfort. But don't you have those moments where you go, I mean, 
you know, my dad and my mom died in one week. Yeah. And um, those moments do come when you say, but why God? Yeah, but it's it's with a different perspective now. It was before it was with a bitterness or a, a grudge towards God. But when you weigh life circumstances and you hear what other people have had to go through, uh, you suddenly realize that I'm not the worst afflicted. And that should give you some kind of uh, a re- re- revised approach mm. to And I'm at peace there now that God loves me. I'm at peace that God has been looking out for me. I miss my dad 44 years later. In fact, it will be 44 years on the 29th of October. I still miss him, but um, I don't your, miss your him. Your dad passed when you were 11 years old, am I right? Yes, I was 11. What do you remember about him? I, 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 everything, Trevor. If my father was behind this wall and he spoke or he laughed, I would recognize that it was him. I remember his voice. Um, I remember some of the things that he he said. He was very particular about tools and 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 things. And you know, I'm just, laughing because you are particular about tools and things. Just <laughs> yeah. don't waste metal. Don't lend your car to anyone. That's you. And, yeah. <laughs> so so. There's those things, and he had such a premium on education. He said, you must be educated. I remember that. He said, you must look after your mother. I remember that. And he said, I mean, some of his last words, because he didn't die straight away. He was in a landmine accident. One of the last things he said to me on the war. Yes, in the war. On the Saturday before he died on the Monday, he said, I want you guys to stick together as a family. He says, it'll help you. So I, I remember a lot um, about my dad, to be honest. I do. Your mom has been your uh, stronghold. Your mom has played this amazing role. Talk to, to me about your mom, who I know very well. Yeah. I'm a loving mm. uh, person, a loving mother. Talk to me about your mom. Yeah, I, I, you know, words are difficult to describe that lady. I know everyone says that about their mother. But I think my mother had quite unique circumstances. She was 36 years old when my father died. She was pregnant with the last born who, who never met my father. And um, she had five other children, so making it six altogether. And um, she, she made a decision not to remarry, which we, when we... We understood it was our preferred decision that time. But as we have grown older ourselves and gotten married, I think, how did she make such a sacrifice that many other people couldn't make and and can't be judged for for remarrying and for making a decision to move on or to find another life companion? But she stayed and stuck with us and continued to bellow her husband's values. You must go to school. You must stick together. You must look after the things that you have. And those values uh, just came. But she stood right through with us. And and each one of us, you know, was made to cross the line, cross the line. And uh, so I find I just, uh, she's an amazing woman. Mm. Yeah. And um, you, 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 you say you've stopped, the, well, even when you ask the question why your father died when you were that young. Do you think as you go through life, you still still carry scars that I didn't have my father? 
you are a pastor. I'm mm. sure you've had people come to you and they've got issues. And mm. the reason they give is, I, never, I don't know who my father is. Mm. I never mm. had a father. Mm. Has, has that scarred you in any way? I, I think so. You know, Trevor, I wouldn't be the best evaluator of it. But um, I, there's certain things that I notice about myself that I wonder if uh, I would have been that way uh, had my father been alive. Very much later in life only was I able to stand up for myself and to defend territory and not to be taken advantage of, you know, and I, have to, I had to consciously learn to be assertive. And I think mm. that may have come mm. uh, from there. But having said that, and another high in my life is that they were always fathering figures that God sent mm. to help. It was an uncle. It was a pastor. It was a Roman Catholic priest, Father Schmidt. It was, they, they were at each stage of my life, there was always someone that had that voice of, of a father giving direction. And, that, and I think God compensated uh, a certain percentage mm. of my loss with uh, willing and uh, individuals that uh, that came to help us and to came to help me. Mm. You, you, so you go to school, you battle because your mom can't pay, but you then get a scholarship. Um, talk to us about which school did you first attend? Where, where, where did you start your education? Okay, so so primary school was uh, in Kadoma, Pamombe. Then we moved to Chembira and Glen, Glenora and then ended up in Jimba from grade four to grade seven at Murombezi School, now known as Matora Nembe. Um, so it was from there, because my, my parents had the, road, uh, the uh, landmine accident uh, two days before my They grade. were together when this They were together. My, mom, my pregnant mom, my brother Shepherd, wow. and my father were in the car. My mom and my brother survived with, with you know, quite significant injuries. And then my father survived for another 12 days. And uh, then he died in Chinoy Hospital. So I then went to St. George's College through this scholarship and this arrangement with the Jesuits priest. And it was an incredible culture shock coming from Jimba Rural <laughs> and, and sitting, sitting with the children of the most elite. It was a big culture shock. Talk to and, me about uh, that. Well, what, what, did, what, did it, what did it feel like, the culture shock? You know, it, it, the school had 700 boys, 56 of whom were African. And so I had to firstly adjust living in a multiracial community because the only white people I had known intimately up till then were the priests in the local parish and suddenly have to rub shoulders with, uh, with these children. And then the economic gap between everyone who was there and myself was just incredible. They had cars, they lived in low density suburbs and farms. And there I was from Chikono in, uh, in Chinoy and caught the United bus to Harare and then caught a pirate taxi to the gate at St. George's. It was, it was uh, some, some, you know, kids can be brutal. And so nicknames started to come up. What nicknames did they give you? They, they <laughs> I want to hear the <laughs> nicknames. 
<laughs> so when we moved to Kambozuma, because when we moved to Chinoy, we moved to Kambozuma and there uh, was a garden party hotel there. Uh, near our house, mm. when people found out, they started to sing a song that when I would come, welcome to the garden party. <laughs> you know, there was an advert, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. So the Zuma garden party exactly. on radio. So, so, yeah. So they would uh, they would sing about that and and laugh because my first set of uniforms was at the thrift from the thrift shop at uh, Saint George's. So my blazer was kind of. Uh, Long, because my mother's philosophy was buy. These kids are growing. Got to last. Buy something <laughs> which meant something that will last yeah, the child. Yeah. And I mean, they had stories to tell about. Are you wearing a dress or are you wearing a blazer? <laughs> you know. But uh, but I also um, then developed very good friends uh, at St George's. Like I said, this gentleman that led us to the Lord was a, a mentor and an opinion leader and was saying, listen, you're in this school, you, mm -hmm. to get an education, mm -hmm. focus on that. Mm -hmm. And then uh, I had a couple of other really good friends and we just huddled together. And thankfully, um, God gave me success in academics. And so there's always a kind of a, a, a respect that you have when you, when you can help someone with their mathematics mm, homework, mm. they're not going to shout at you or join the crowd at break time who are singing that song because tonight, the next night, they have to be helped with their mathematics. Know, algorithm. Yeah. You know? <laughs> <laughs> We're going to take a break there. When we yeah. come back, I'm going to want to find out from you what it is that made you, made you decide to, to study medicine. So uh, at home, please don't go away. You join us on the other side. Grandmother said to, to me, you, you, you are an orphan. Your mother has worked so hard for you guys. And are you telling me you want to be a doctor for dogs? Welcome back to our conversation with uh, Dr. Matthew Wazara, specialist surgeon and, and pastor. So you are at St. George's, yes. uh, Form 1. Uh, let's, let's walk through that story, Form 1, Form 2. Yeah, so we're there Form 1 to Form 6. Um, I get a bursary or a scholarship from the Jesuit uh, uh, Foundation. And uh, the first year is a struggle because I'm still mourning my dad. I'm only 12 years old. And um, this, I start to make some friends. And uh, by Form 3, you know, I'm in the fabric uh, of the school. And a good thing about those schools uh, at that time is they made an effort to not show the class disparity. So there was a cap on how much pocket money you could bring to school and you had to give it to the boarding master and sign it out. So that, that regulated uh, how opulence was uh, uh, displayed. Uh, you only wore clothes from home on civis day, which was a specific day mm. uh, during the term. So that helped mm. uh, to balance. To make course, you feel comfortable yes, with your Zimba background <laughs> <laughs> and look like the others. Yeah. Of course, the day scholars would bust it because there wasn't a, a, a enough control 
on them. But it was there that, as I said, I became a Christian. But it was also where the, the school had an incredible culture for excellence, incredible culture for uh, allowing people to blossom in their... I was not much of a sports person at that time. And, um, but still there was a path. So when others would go to, um, to, to, to sports, there was a maths club or a motor cl motor club that we could join. So you'd find something that you could, uh, uh, shine at and, and not feel is, left Is that where your interest in cars and tinkering with cars started? <laughs> wow. Which, which, which is a carryover from your, the influence that your father had on you. No, I think cars were from, uh, from the beginning, because I, I saw photographs of myself at four and a half uh, with a wire car and this competition that was being done by, I think it was the traffic safety or SWIFT. They, they would teach kids how to uh, understand road signs and so on. And so I had, my mother made me a, a coat, a white coat made in plastic and a cap that said SWIFT on it. And I was driving a wire car. I think I've been fascinated by cars from, <laughs> from the beginning. So, yeah, so that was the journey really at, uh, at St. George's. And um, it was also the first time that I learned to speak in public. Hmm. Um, because coming from the Group B schools, as they were known those days, we had a lot of vocabulary that we knew big words. And <laughs> we had... Uh, and we had done spellings and all that, but we, we didn't know how to confidently uh, deploy them. Exactly. So, you know, uh, as debating clubs were opened and every once in a while you noticed that, oh, I threw in a word there that everybody was uh, <laughs> impressed with and gave a little bit of confidence um, as well to, to, to public speak. Mm. And and after form you you did your form six and yes. after that where did you go? So I went to the local university and um, studied medicine there. Why? I mean, you, what, your father wasn't in medicine, was he? No, no. Yeah. Why did you choose medicine? What was the influence for you going towards <laughs> medicine? So my parents were both teachers. Um, I wanted to be a vet. My real passion at that time was to be a vet. Why? I just loved animals and I just, uh, you know, f growing up in a rural setting, fishing and hunting and those kind of things. So I just loved animals. And so we were given th three options at the University of Zimbabwe of what you, uh, you know, the first week or the they called it orientation yeah, week. Yeah, yeah. So I put veterinary science first, I put medicine second. And I put engineering third. I wanted to do engineering because it was short. I thought I'd get to money quickly. <laughs> <laughs> then was um, then my mother found out from the physiology teacher that uh, I had put my uh, my name down for veterinary medicine, and it was just starting in 1986. Then the medical, yeah, the veterinary yes. school. And but the first year, vet and medicine subjects are very similar except for anatomy. And they told my mom that we're seeing your son at uh, wanting to do uh, veterinary. And uh, so my grandmother and my maternal grandmother and my mother came to my residence new complex. Mm. And my grandmother said to, to me, you, you, you are an orphan. 
your mother has worked so hard for you guys. And are you telling me you want to be a doctor for dogs when you can be a doctor for people? <laughs> and, uh, you know, I mulled over it, I mulled over it, and I said, okay, I'll do it. I'll get that degree. I'll give it to my mom, and I'll go back to, to vet school. But I think that was God that guided my steps. That was the right uh, decision. So that's, Fascinating, that, that's how I ended it? up. Fascinating how our path is ordered. Mm-hmm by interventions from the teachers telling your mom that he's doing veterinary sciences mm. and, and then you were made to do something else. It's, it's fascinating. For me, that's fascinating mm. how our purpose is set. Mm. And sometimes it, it takes a bit of listening to a number of voices around you. Is, mm. that, is that your experience? Yeah, I mean, in the, you know, the Bible says, in the multitude of counsel, there is safety. I think we ignore a lot of um, advantage to ourselves by not listening to trusted voices around it. I mean, don't listen to every, every voice. voice. But, but if, when, a, when a trusted voice speaks, it must be weighed. Mm. And in the case of my grandmother and my mother, it definitely was the, the, the right thing. I still love animals. Um, I still got to practice. When I worked in Chiredzi, there wasn't a vet there. So I got to practice quite a bit of veterinary medicine anyway. So, so I go, but the patients don't talk back and they don't come and say thank you. And so I'm better, I'm happier with my with current patients. <laughs> but there's something I, I should mention, which you might uh, resonate with. The vet science mm. at the University of Zimbabwe was the institution. Yeah. We had people from all over the world yeah, yeah, yeah. coming. We had Indians. Mm. Mm. We had guys from the UK, mm. Zambia, Malawi. Mm. It was a very interesting space. Did you enjoy that aspect of it? Yeah, well, I mean, we knew that this school was new, but we'd, be, we'd had, uh, uh, you know, career guidance talks. And they were saying this school is well-funded, but also its location there's so much to learn from. There's wildlife and big wildlife. Then there's small animals. Then there's uh, domestic animals and so on. So this was a meeting point of all the pathologies that you could find. And it was an amazing school, uh, uh, honestly. So that was something that was like a magnet to it. Yeah. Um, and um, uh, a lot of uh, doctors who graduated there have ended up in all parts of the world because they were so well-grounded. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. So as, as you're walking this journey with your medicine, is, is God speaking to you about being a pastor or you're just being like all of us going to the uh, students' common room and drinking a bit of castle and that kind of stuff? Talk to me about that. <laughs> <laughs> now, listen, yeah, Trevor, now you start. <laughs> <laughs> so, so unlike like you're telling me your story that you backslid, uh, backslid and then came back, all my uh, uh, kind of that lifestyle happened while I was a Christian. Mm. So there was a tension, you know, the pressure to go to nightclub, the pressure to drink, the pressure to do this. This happened while on the inside I knew that I believed in God and that I loved God and I knew where I wanted to end up, which was in the purpose and plan of God for me. And so going through medical school, medical school was hard for me for the first two years, really difficult. Why? Uh, I think I was immature. I was young for my, uh, you know, I, I, I did my A-levels at 17. 
And so I walked into university having done maths and physics at uh, at A level, which subjects were easy for me because you know when you when you are mathematically minded, mm. those subjects are natural. Now I'd never done biology at A level. Now I'm suddenly having to do biochemistry, anatomy, physiology. So that kind of memorizing stuff and not just working stuff out was was quite a challenge for me. Mm. And only um, so I chose a roommate who was top of our class and was one of my closest friends, Cyril, today. And just would keep looking because, you know, we were sharing rooms and I just looking at how he did things. <laughs> That's how I learned <laughs> to actually manage and cope with uh, medicine. But once we got to the clinical, yeah. people-based uh, part of it, I, I excelled and I enjoyed it. Mm. Yeah. Let's go back to your battle with God. Mm-hmm. You are you are backsliding. You, you said you didn't backslide like yeah. That. So Let's I, go I'd there. been church every yeah. Sunday, mm-hmm. and uh, but I would also want to be and then in I the club. world. I didn't want to miss a party. I didn't want to miss a, a Friday night at a circus nightclub. I didn't want to miss that. And then at the church we were going to because uh, there was a group of us. I shan't name the others that were in this lifestyle, and we. Um, we started to get a little bit of a name uh, uh, for ourselves at the church that these guys, they say they're Christians. You know, they started to call us sipping saints, <laughs> you know. <laughs> and um, so we, 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 ob- we knew that we are likely to get into some kind of trouble with the leadership. And um, we were called by a pastor who was called Pastor Cornelius Haynes. And he said, boys, I hear about you. And I hear that you are the boys about town. He said, yeah, we're in the Bible. Does it say you can't go into a nightclub? You know, we're cocky with an attitude. Then he said, I don't want you to stop anything that you're doing. But what I want you to do is I want you to increase the amount of Christ in you. He says, don't change anything. You're asking me all these questions. He says, increase the amount of Christ in you and let's see what falls off. So we got into these discipleship programs, young Timothys and young Joshuas, you know. And the word of God has got some kind of a mirror effect. You begin to say, hmm, is this okay what I'm doing here? And for sure, as we became more mature in the things of God, there was just some places that you didn't feel comfortable being in. There's some things you just didn't feel comfortable doing anymore. And that's how um, that started to change. And it's something I believe in very strongly, that uh, your level of compromise is a, is a reflection of your level of development in God. If you are develop yourself in the things of God genuinely, there's power there that will allow you to walk away from certain things. His word is a double-edged sword, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. And uh, the more you imbibe the word, the more you are in the word, the more it dwells in you, the more it changes you. Yeah, it does. This is sometimes that uh, pastor helped me here, you're my pastor, push back, that the world doesn't understand Mm -hmm. that being a Christian is a journey. Mm -hmm. And when you're saying you're a Christian, you're not saying you are perfect. Mm -hmm. You are saying, I I am faulty like uh, like everybody else, but I'm on a journey. Mm-hmm. Put that in, in, a, in a pastoral way um, for, for, for the world to understand that you are not just 
bomb, I'm a Christian, mm. and therefore I'm, I'm, I'm perfect. Do you want to talk to that? So I think the, a, a way that I like to look at this, sure. and the words of Jesus, he says, I'll make you fishers of men. Now, when you fish, uh, you don't say, uh, fish, I want you to be clean first before you can come into my net. Yeah? You catch the fish first. Then you clean them to where they're most useful. And I think that when people, and Christ made it very clear, you shouldn't come to the church because you are good enough to come to the church. You actually come to Christ as you are because you see how hopeless it is for you and how to help yourself. And then once you're with him, he starts to, to, to clean you. And so don't judge a fish that's been cleaned on one side and hasn't been turned over yet and say, hey, it's not a useful fish. No, no, no. It's in the process of being cleaned. I think the only fish that's not good is one that holds on to its scales. Don't remove my scales. I don't want with them. No, that's, no, that's a, that's the, that, that's a well, problem. Well, the one that refuses to be caught. The one that refuses, absolutely. To, and uh, wants to stay in the dangerous ocean mm. and not come here where it's mm. safe. Mm. So it's, it's not correct to judge a person who's on a journey. I mean, if a child is three, two years old and can't reach the door handle, you know, you don't laugh and say, oh, that hopeless mm. child that will never mm. open a door. Because you know one day, mm. if the parents remain and the environment remains, that child will reach the door. Mm. Yeah. You, 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 so you go to uh, University of Zimbabwe and you, St. George's, you do a Bachelor of Medicine, mm. uh, a Bachelor of Surgery, use it in 1990, a Diploma mm. in Business Leadership with UNISA, a Master's in Medicine, um, an MBA in International Health. Has, and then Frankfurt Business School. Has, has this all been deliberate in terms of uh, uh, what I want to specialize in and, and so forth? Walk us through that thought process and the influences. Okay. Uh, the short answer, yes. This has been deliberate. When I did my first degree, uh, the medical degree, I went to work in the district. I was working in the Cheredzi area. I worked for Tongat Hewlett and Anglo-American then, the Sugar Estates. Uh, I knew I wanted to be a surgeon because that was the subject I enjoyed the most when I was, uh, when I was still in medical school. And also when I was in, um, in the district, the things that I would always feel out of my depth around were things surgical. You know, I, I, I was okay with obstetrics. I could do cesarean sections and deliver babies. I, I, if a child was sick, I could do enough pediatrics to keep the child going until they were referred to Araro, Mashingo, or Bulawayo. Um, I could also do hypertension and diabetes. But when it came to surgery, I always used to, you know, I, 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 I couldn't do it. Mm -hmm. And so that was my journey back to Harare to specialize in surgery. I'd wanted to be a heart surgeon, but just opportunities didn't open up. We didn't have a program here. And so I went and became a general surgeon. And um, suddenly I felt better mm. and felt more able to, to deliver what I felt was inside of me. Mm. Uh, and then the business degrees, the, the MBA and the MBL, it was really out of, I was involved in so many things 
that required me to understand cash flows, that required me to be able to read an income statement or balance sheet. And um, I just didn't know that. We were in a project with Celebration Church then to try and do a hospital with Harvard. And I mean, the accountant at Harvard would just leave uh, uh, documents and you had to go to the bank and try to get a loan and you hear a word debenture or, you know, and I just didn't understand all those things. So that's what made me uh, go to do the business uh, degrees that masters in Frankfurt and and the one with UNISA. Mm. And in terms of your, what have been your defining assignments within the medical medical field? I think I have two major uh, roles, Trevor. The first one is as a teacher. I um, we get medical students attached to us. We get people who are doing their postgraduates attached to us. This is at Pararenyatwa. This is at Pararenyatwa yeah. Hospital, and it's something that I I consider a priority in my in my life. And then the second thing is medical outreaches, particularly surgical outreaches, where we end up going to mission hospitals and with teams. Uh, you know, we get quite large teams that 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 join. And we go and do surgeries in places where the people wouldn't be able to get that surgery. And yet the system is quite uh, overburdened in the central hospitals for them to be able to come here. These two um, are are priorities for me. Mm -hmm. I I run a private practice as well, and uh, which is for for taking care of the family. But if you took these other two away from me, I wouldn't feel... Mm -hmm. Uh, myself fully. Mm. Talk to me about, or rather, let's take a break here. When we come back, I want to take advantage of uh, your struggling the public sector, mm-hmm. the mm-hmm. and the private sector, mm-hmm. and see whether are there lessons that we can, the two can teach each other. Sure. So please sure. don't go away. See you on the other side. The Zimbabwean Medical School traditionally has been one of the strongest on the African continent. Greetings. My name is Trevor Nube, host of In Conversation with Trevor, Zimbabwe's most engaging conversational show. I go beyond the headlines and beyond the sensational. We've brought before your screens change makers from arts, business, and politics, and from the region. Please join our growing community of viewers. Subscribe like and share welcome back to our conversation with dr matthew chamunora wazera um a specialist uh, surgeon and a pastor so dr wazera pastor wazera you you, str- you have had the blessing of struggling the public sector and the private sector and my question to you is what are the challenges in both spaces mm. in the first instance? And then secondly, c- can the two learn from each other? Mm-hmm. And what would those be lessons be? Uh, so Trevor, just to take it back a little yeah, bit. sure. The Zimbabwean Medical School traditionally has been one of the strongest on the African continent. and Up to now? Uh, things are a bit strained now uh, with shortage of teachers and shortage of resources. But certainly in the 80s that uh, that I trained here, 
my decision to train here was not because that's what was available. It's what we preferred mm. because of the quality. Mm. And we would do exchange programs with um, Europe, uh, Scandinavia. We'd go for exchange programs in the United States. We didn't feel any inferior, less. any less than the, than, than the cadres that were training there. So the public sector, which is where the uh, doctors and nurses and health professionals are trained, here has had a culture of, uh, of excellence and, and competence. And um, that's where everyone that you see that is Zimbabwean who's great in private sector has come from that system. And so the, the tension now is that you have this place that trains these competent people, but they're not able to give all that they're capable of in that place and then go into the private sector to be able to deliver a higher quality of care. And I think that's, that needs um, attention because the, the, there's not, it's the same person yeah. that is this side and that side. That side, they do open heart and this and that. And this side, they're only doing a, a restricted practice. Basic. Yeah. So I think that's an important one to that attention that needs to be resolved. Another tension that needs to be resolved, so, so this one is a policy somewhere. It's got to be fixed where private practice shouldn't be, a, um, private practice should almost be like a luxury. People that don't want the crowds in the public sector go to private hospitals. And they were prepared to pay for that. Yes, but not that it's the first port of call. Which is what for, we for are excellence, now. yes. So I think that tension needs to be resolved. A second one, which is for professionals such as myself, is that for me to become a competent practitioner, it's because I train and learn in the public sector on patients. I mean, I'm supervised, I'm being helped, but really the material that gives me my competence is these poor patients. And then when I qualify, it shouldn't be that I would exclude myself from serving these and just be on this side. I really feel for medical mm. professionals that we, we've got to straddle the line, certainly for a certain number of years, uh, so that you give back to these people that were really our educators. Mm. These patients were our educators. Mm. Um, and then, and then the, uh, the third tension is that there are so many Zimbabweans in the diaspora with all kinds of skills. You saw there's a Zimbabwean doctor that did an operation on someone in the, in the uterus and the, took out the baby, put it back in the uterus. Zimbabwean. There was a pathologist who was the director of pathology in Canada. And, but there are thousands of them out there. At this time, even if they could be brought in to do sessions, in Zimbabwe, if the environment could be created to come and give lectures, to come and do surgeries, to come and do clinics. Uh, this country is wealthy where that is concerned. Why don't we do that? Uh, I, I think there's a perception out there from our colleagues that there's nothing. If I come home, what am I going to do? That's one. But also there should be a deliberate program that gives them a six-week uh, uh, season where they come back home and they do their clinics at Pari, at Mpilo, wherever, mm -hmm. and then they get a sponsored two-week holiday with their family and they go back. 
it would everyone's heart wow. is with hope. My, my heart is jumping as you're talking in, uh, because this would be a recognition mm-hmm. that the diaspora and us are one. Yeah. And that the diaspora has a lot to offer and that Zimbabwe with open arms and facilitating we could actually end up uh, working in unison with mm-hmm. our with our colleagues that are in the diaspora. Sure. And um, at, at policy level, I mean, I'm taking it to an uncomfortable space. But what mm-hmm. needs to be done to get the public the public uh, sector or health delivery system where it, it it should be? Because pushback, if you if you may, uh, uh, Pastor Doctor, that at the moment health delivery is to those who can pay mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and it's very few yeah. that can that mm-hmm. can afford mm-hmm. uh, it's become costly mm-hmm. it's become uh, the waiting periods in tested instances are, are, are very high mm-hmm. what needs to be done to fix this thing at a policy at policy level uh, Trevor I don't think it's uh, it's it's a difficult one in my view First and foremost, I think there needs to be a, an audit and an acceptance that over the years of strife or economic pressure, things have significantly deteriorated. It's a reality that we must uh, uh, awaken to. And then be collaborative in, in, in fixing it and in its restoration. What do I mean by that? If you look right now as we speak, there are so many teams within Zimbabwe, never mind the ones that come to help from them, that, that do camps to try and decongest the system. And it's local Zimbabweans who are doing it without pay, who just want the tools to be able to do the work with. So I think that there needs to be a, that review and say things have changed. Give it a percentage. Mm. What percentage of capacity do we are we at now compared to 1990? Mm. And then say, let's get all the tools that are necessary. Let's start with the tools so that people can be helped. And then let's retain the human resources. It is painful to see how many nurses, because nurses are, are a backbone. For the health system. Indeed. How, you can go anywhere in the world and you're going to find Zimbabwe nurses in this ICU, Zimbabwe nurses in this casualty, Zimbabwe nurses. And we, we can't just train and export. We need to train and keep mm. a 70%. Mm. But the things that at policy level can be done, people are looking for housing, mm. transportation, mm. ability to educate their children. Let's just be deliberate, bite the bullet and secure mm. those things. Mm. And I, I think that our system will harm again. I, I hear the compassionate you, mm-hmm. um, and I, I must ask this question. Is it possible, first of all, commend the private sector, mm-hmm. the things that you are doing, mm-hmm. uh, the things that our good friend uh, um, um, Chura, Alan Chura and them are doing in the mm-hmm. private sector? There's mm-hmm. a lot of beautiful stuff mm-hmm. that is being done there, mm-hmm. but it's not for everybody mm-hmm. that can afford. Is it possible that this budgeting private sector could provide low and affordable health care delivery? I, I think so very much. And some of the hospitals, and I can't name uh, them here, there are hospitals in this city that keep a quota of their operating time 
for people that cannot afford and they they help that's interesting but you know if you look at um uh, india has become a destination for zimbabweans to go who are seeking expert care the amount of money that medical insurances and those families pay to go there and to be taken care of mm. is so much that if that money was put here even to say private sector if you do these cases for us we will pay because the 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 people with similar competences are here and as i said there are zimbabweans that could come here and treat those patients that would go to india but they 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 there isn't a program where they recognize there's an essential service and they are given some kind of incentive to do that and the private sector for sure can can help bridge this gap until the system is fully on its feet does this require the government to play a midwife role or the private sector could do this on its own no a sector like health can't be done in silos uh, the government has to be willing to to stimulate it and the private sector has to be willing to host it mm. and and this is i think it's it's a partnership mm. pastor doctor very interesting space you occupy mm. very important responsibilities <laughs> um well, and you do so many other things you're doing work at the, is it karande hospital karande uh, mission hospital mission what are you doing there um so current is one of these surgical outreaches which is being celebrated quite a lot i see uh, people saying good things about current no it's it's an outstanding uh, facility and with a heart to just help and you so, are involved in that yes so we we have teams that come together i mean uh, i'm only a contact of of sorts with them but we convene teams mm-hmm. that go together patients are booked and we assist karanda to do patients that come there that wouldn't be able to be done because uh, you know there's not a specialist anesthetist that's resident there mm-hmm. so we take teams of specialist anesthetists surgeons pediatric surgeons and go there and and do these operations and other uh teams also go there there are orthopedic teams that uh, go there there are urology teams that go to karanda and it 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 under it emphasizes the question that you're asking the zimbabweans are willing to help the people and uh, all these do it on a volunteer basis but imagine that there was a structured program and it was multiplied yeah that says every district has people coming from the uh, center and go there once every month mm. and 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 service there until that district is able to attract its own specialists mm. and mm. and the health professionals that stay there mm. you're also founder of uh, st wilfred mission talk to me about that beautiful job you're doing there <laughs> so so that's a, the poetic justice uh, uh, project st wilfred's hospital in kambuzuma is what used to be the garden party <laughs> 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 that song interesting yeah. so having section 4 or section section 5 section 5 yeah mm. so having grown up in kambozuma this was uh, according to my mom the den of iniquity in the neighborhood the kambozuma garden party hotel 
so over time, it transitioned into being a school. And eventually now, um, we got our hands on it and uh, transformed it into a hospital. And it's a, it's a hospital, it's a, it's a middle-of-the-road hospital. It, it's for patients who cannot afford the full private sector fee, but that are struggling to get service mm -hmm. in the public sector. So it has a middle-of-the-road uh, tariff, and uh, particularly for surgery. Mm. And so, so that's, that's what uh, uh, we developed there. And uh, I, I wish all my friends that used to sing the song, Welcome to the Garden Party, could come and say, Welcome to St. Wilfred's <laughs> Hospital. <laughs> I, yeah. I remember, you know, I spent, I lived in, in, in Kambazuma with my sister for a while. I remember walking past uh, the garden party and how we would envy the people that are inside there. Yes, and yeah. you've turned it around into yeah, into into yeah. something else. No, the, really, the, thank God for that. Thank God indeed. The 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 I always want to ask ask people like you, a medical doctor and a man of faith. Mm -hmm. How you because faith you can't prove. Mm -hmm. Uh, certain things, but science you can. Mm -hmm. How do you, as a scientist, respond to people who say, but there is no God? <laughs> and how do you, as a scientist, believe in a God that we can't touch and feel? Where is the science in, 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 in your God? Does he actually exist? I can prove that this cup exists because yeah. of A, B, C, D. Talk to me about that space, because I think for me it's an important space. So Trevor, I believe that science and Christianity, true science, are actually one. Because to, to understand how mathematics could calculate things that make these lights work and always work on the same formula, it sounds very much like that there's, there's power that guarantees consistency. I give this example, people that say they, you can't prove God. We're sitting here. If suddenly a lavish breakfast came here and it was served to us and you locked those doors and you say, doctor, that this just, just arrived, mm -hmm. this breakfast. I, I, whatever you're saying to me, I'll be wanting to go and see who is in the kitchen mm -hmm. because someone must have made this. And in medicine, I find it the most humbling of professions and should be the one that most leads us to God because the people that we handle and their outcomes, there's a gap between what I do and what becomes of the patient. If I cut someone, I just put a bandage. I actually don't know how their skin comes together, how the muscles find each other, how the scar heals. And, and for me to say, oh, it just happens. There was no one in the kitchen. That was, I, I find that very mm. difficult to, mm. to accept. There, there is a God who shows himself by outcomes. You know, when you drive your car, you've never seen the pistons no. of your car. No. But, but the, the way the car moves tells you there must be an engine in there. And, um, there is an engine that drives this whole world. Mm. Yeah. There is a God. Yeah. And he's an amazing God. He is. Um, Mahatma Gandhi said, um, no, I love you, Jesus. Mm -hmm. I love you, God. 
But the problem is with you Christians. Mm -hmm. If I look at you Christians, you put me off. Mm -hmm. And we had Pastor Nevan Paruta here, and I'm, I'm going to play the video for, for you to watch. I'm glad that pastors don't have a heaven. <laughs> and a whole lot of them, or let's say those who are in, doing church ministry are taking a whole lot of people to hell. Why? We are presenting ourselves and not presenting the Christ of the Bible. To sum what he says, essentially, thank God mm -hmm. pastors don't have a heaven. Mm -hmm. Because some of these pastors will be taking their congregates straight to heaven. Mm -hmm. Men of God have let down God yeah. because they've represented themselves as God. Do you want to push back against that? You know, that was such a profound uh, interview and that was such a profound presentation in the sense that Christian leaders, their role is to represent God to people that are either lost or in need and direct them to the Creator. Now, there is a trap that is easy to fall into as a Christian leader, where you draw people more towards yourself and they're more fascinated with you and they honor you more than the God whom you are serving. And I think that's what uh, uh, Bishop Mparuza was, uh, was saying. So if at the end of my sermon, you feel more drawn to me as a pastor than drawn to God as the creator, there's something that I have misrepresented there. And this has really put a lot of people, and hurt Christians, Absolutely. people that love God, who find that they're being pressured to honor the man of God, to, to, to rally around the man of God more than the God whom he serves. You end up hurting those people because even men of God then eventually make a mistake or don't, aren't consistent in their service to, to, the, to the congregants that they, only God is faithful. Only God is unchanging. Only God is all-knowing and all-powerful. And so we are supposed to be those conduits, the shepherds for the master shepherd. And so I, I really which is, applaud. Which is not easy. Mm -hmm. It isn't easy. No. When you preach to us on a Sunday and we are excited about the message, it, 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 it's an anointed message and uh, it's difficult to... to uh, extricate the pastor from the message. Mm -hmm. And it also must be difficult for the pastor not to want to take the credit for the message that's been delivered. Yeah, so, but this, when you study the word, God is so um, emphatic that we should not be representing ourselves. In fact, the Bible says Jesus came to serve, right? And it says, he who wants to be greatest, must make himself least of all. So the honor will come, but it shouldn't be extracted. And it shouldn't, you know, get big-headed because I delivered such a message because uh, I wouldn't have that capacity. And mm -hmm. I am just an ambassador. The day an ambassador doesn't represent their country... They get recalled. They're called back. <laughs> the, 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 then the other, there's other thing that you, you say, I mean, in related to that. Christians, we, 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 we do so much damage to ourselves and to the mm -hmm. message of Christ and to um, 
Christ himself. But the other thing is that I want to pose it to you, and I want you to push back as much as possible, is that we are timid. Mm -hmm. <laughs> the world is very clear in what it wants us not to do. Mm -hmm. Christ people who are not Christians are actually very good at describing how a Christian should behave mm -hmm. <laughs> and mm -hmm. conduct themselves. Mm -hmm. And now the world is telling us that uh, sexuality is a preference, <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> that you can prefer to be gay, you can prefer to be lesbians, and that the church should admit gays and lesbians and marry them. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I, I think that the church has not stood firm as far as that is concerned. What's, what's your sense? Uh, yeah. So, so uh, I mean, you're absolutely right. The church has always been expected by God to be the voice of God in situations on the earth. Um, Jesus himself, you would find him sometimes at loggerheads with the leaders and say, the you, Pharisees and you brood of vipers, mm. why do you honor your traditions more than God? Why are you hypocritical and wanting to appear holier than, uh, than, how you, than thou, so to speak? If you take the subject that you've brought up, the subject of sexuality, it's very clear that in the beginning, male and female created he. And it's part of God's grand plan for procreation. It's part of God's plan for, for how he wanted us to live on earth. Now, you come into a situation where the world is saying there are multiple genders. It's already a, a, at variance with what the word is saying, that male and female created he them. That's one. The second thing they come to is that it's, uh, the, the, the world is saying you must accept. Okay. Now, Trevor, sexuality is a, first and foremost ought to be a private thing. I don't wear a T-shirt that I'm heterosexual. I don't even announce to, to my kids that I'm heterosexual with their mom. It's a private thing that you should just observe and say, no, this is how he is. Now, when you say that someone has a preference, the distinguishing thing between us humans and, and other species is that when we feel an urge, when we feel a preference, we weigh it first before we execute it. So you say, if you're feeling angry, you don't just go and bash everyone. You say, is this right? Is this legal? Is this helpful? So, so, so you control yourself and you realize that I can't just do this. Mm. So when you say, I have a preference, which is at variance, homosexuality is a, called a sin in the word of God. If you have that preference, it's not right to expect the whole world to celebrate it. You know, the, that word pride that comes with the, the, the movement is the Bible says pride comes before for God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. It's very important that, that we don't do that. Now, the, is the homosexual to be loved less? No. No. The, I don't believe in gay rights. I believe in human rights. I believe in God-given rights. 
if someone is homosexual, they are no less of a family member, they are no less of a child, they are no less of, a, but to move an agenda to say, accept this. And if you accept them, you are intolerant. And yet when you share what the word of God says, when you say what the natural laws say, you, you no one says, when you share that, you are being intolerant. Mm. I, th I think that is, so an agenda to be pushed is not correct, Trevor. To be able to help someone, to be able to accept someone like that, that's, that's biblical. Yeah. But to accept that that becomes as philosophy that is pushed onto the whole world as an agenda, I th that's not appropriate. Mm. A couple of questions that I have for you before we go to the book section. Um, you carry a burden. Mm -hmm. We come to you with our marital problems. We come to you with our financial problems. We come to you with national issues mm -hmm. that we want you to help you resolve. These are big things. Mm -hmm. Who counsels the pastor? <laughs> Where does the pastor go and unburden all this, this stuff? So um, I think the big thing that, uh, and I'd speak to all pastors about this, is just the, the wisdom that we need for everything is buried in the Word of God. So we have to be people of the Word. But I have a personal pastor. Every pastor must have an accountable uh, pastor that, they, that who can talk to them and say, please, look at this. Please stop this, and they'll stop the day that you find yourself above counsel mm. is the day that you know you're in serious danger. So I have a personal pastor. I have friends, uh, a group of friends, six to eight of them that I run to and that I'm vulnerable with that, um, that I ask to speak into my life. And, mm. and, and that's actually been a stabilizing force. Mm. You have a, a couple of ambitions which I absolutely love, mm -hmm. um, which I want to share with the world. One of your ambition is, uh, of, we've touched on this, mm -hmm. the restoration and advancement of uh, Zimbabwe's health delivery sector. Mm -hmm. And another ambition, you want to score two goals for Team Zimbabwe. I found that very interesting. And also your other ambition is uh, to die surrounded by accomplishments. Mm -hmm. Unpack that for me. The first one is, is it, Trevor? I was lamenting how I feel we have lost our position um, uh, on as a medical delivery mm. nation, that we are not where we used to be. We, we were the chief referral center in this region. Now we are referring to other countries. So I have a passion to, and a desire to see that helped and restored. Mm. Um, the second one about scoring a goal for the nation. This, you know, we it's Rugby World Cup now. Yeah. You know, and and you see the game South Africa versus England. Tense moments. Things are going to be lost. And the fullback comes in a critical and difficult moment and puts it through the posts. And I said to my wife, what it must feel like to do something that your nation was holding their breath over and have it resolved through you. It's my prayer to God that there would be something of that magnitude that, that God enables me to do for Zimbabwe, that Zimbabwe can 
we're glad this is resolved. That's what I mean by that uh, couple of goals. The uh, beauty with that is you're talking, I'm thinking, imagine 16 million of us yeah. having that dream. Yeah. Imagine 16 million of us being able to score that goal. Imagine the difference it would make to this and nation. And everyone, I believe, has some uniqueness in them that they are able to score a goal that no one else would be able to score. Absolutely. And so people shouldn't hold back. And then I said, uh, I'd love to die surrounded by accomplishments. I'm not looking for a statue uh, that says Dr. Wazar, but to have been part of a movement that that restored Mondoros this, or a movement that restored the medical school, or a movement that uh, got churches to work together and not compete and to each play their part. If, if God would help me to be that, those kind of accomplishments is what I dream about. Wow. And I think, you know, can you imagine back at home as you're watching us, if all of us had those ambitions to be able to accomplish that? to live in a nation that allows you to, to, to do that, yeah. to contribute to a nation that allows more and yeah. more of us to yeah. do that. That would be amazing. Yeah. I'm not going to allow you to go before <laughs> we talk books. And uh, we t we're going to turn to books now, which is a very popular section. Uh, and apologies, we I think our last two episodes or so didn't have the book section. We apologize for that. But today we're not going to do that. One of your ambitions is to write books yes. uh, to motivate um, for motivation and, 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 and posterity. So we're looking forward to, to that. They say mm -hmm. you should never ask somebody how far they are with writing their books because that could just jinx things. <laughs> um, what books have you read, uh, Pastor, that you'd want to recommend to our viewers out there? So Trevor, I read uh, widely. I love biographies uh, because it tells me who what people were thinking. I, I read quite a bit of Zimbabwean uh, biographies. I read Dinner with uh, uh, Mugabe, The Struggle for Zimbabwe by Herbert Ushio Kunze. The Struggle Continues, David Coltart. I'm just finishing Beautiful now. book. Yes. I love those books. For Zimbabwe, I have a question. Mm -hmm. Is what made those guys be willing or able to sacrifice to the extent of abandoning everything to go to secure the country's independence. And I, I want to see if anything changed, if that same thing remains uh, in them and how it's transmitted when you're no longer under the same pressure and the same conditions. That's why I love biographies. Mm. I read other countries' uh, politics and, and biographies as well. But that's my political interest, particularly around Zimbabwe. Um, I then re read quite a bit of uh, personal management. I love a guy called Hiram Smith. Mm -hmm. And he gives laws on time management, laws. Which book several, in particular would you it's recommend? This is time and self-management. Mm. It, it, that book changed my life because he, he asks you to be honest with yourself 
about the hemorrhage of time, about where you waste time. You know, you always say, I'm, yeah. bu I'm busy. Don't you know this? And he, he corners you to say, no, you, you, you're not that busy. You're just not organized. Yeah. So, so he's been a great help for me. Mm. Um, I read everything that I know that exists by Edwin Lewis Cole. Mm. And um, I just found him to have handles on men, particularly around being a father. Because as I told you, I grew up without a dad. I don't know how to do fathering. And my children were my first experiment. So, and they uh, take exception to that. Because <laughs> <laughs> the results are the ones that have stood up and said, I'm not an experiment, <laughs> Junior. <laughs> Uh, they've suffered. Yeah. Uh, they've they've had to be processed by a guy who's learning. Yeah. So that's what on parenting and kind of husbanding, mm. that's been my my mentor. Um, I read fiction. I like to read fiction, and I read a lot of animal wildlife. I don't know if you remember the guy James Herriot. Yes. I I I gobble up. I still find books in old bookshops of James Herriot, Gerald Darrow. There's a rural boy inside you. Mm, absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> in fact, I think that we were having a discussion with my best friend the other day. I'm actually more rural than I am uh, the other. Mm. You know, I just uh, you know, the diamond is polished a little bit, but inside it's... Uh, it's rural. I love being in the bush. I love being Kumusha and stuff like that. Thank you for sharing those books. I'm going to share uh, this. This is a book that I'm reading at the moment by um, Walter Isaacson on mm -hmm. Elon Musk. Uh, a a be beautiful book in, in many respects. You know, you it's very easy, Pastor, to look at um, Pastor Wazara driving his beautiful cars and, mm -hmm. and stuff. And you don't ask yourself, how did he get there? Mm. Um, Elon Musk has taken a lot of sacrifices mm. and there's a lot of knocks to get where, where, where he is. I love the guy who wrote the book, um, Walter Isaacson. Mm. Um, Walter Isaacson wrote um, the biography on, on Steve Jobs. Mm. I like the way he writes. Mm. Um, so this is a book I, I, I would recommend to, to people to read. Lots of uh, uh, lessons on, on family. Um, uh, he's estranged from his father, uh, as you know. Uh, mm -hmm. He doesn't talk to his father anymore. But uh, this is the man who uh, has given us Tesla, Tesla yeah. has given us uh, SpaceX, and this, it, he's got the biggest uh, collection of uh, satellites yeah. out there. This is the man who's uh, doing uh, things I don't like about Twitter, mm -hmm. but I've learned <laughs> not to bet against Elon Musk. Yeah. Beautiful book, yeah. book to read. Pastor... I told you I was excited about yeah, talking no, I've, to you. I've been more Thank you so blessed much. by Thank our so time much. together. Do you want us to pray? Do you want to pray for absolutely. us? Uh, this absolutely. This is the first time we're going to pray live yeah. because you are my pastor. Uh, please pray for us. Absolutely. Heavenly Father, thank you for this opportunity to represent you in this way, this opportunity to, to process issues uh, in this manner. I pray for uh, Trevor and his organization that you would always help them to remain at the center of dialogue that educates, that balances, and that inspires. And I pray for every member of uh, the audience that listens to this, that there would be an ignition in them through this process, that they would play their part uh, in this game uh, and play their part in this body that, that you have put together. Bless uh, Trevor, bless his team, 
and bless the members and the, uh, and the viewers that watch this. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. Pastor, Amen. thank you for thank creating you. the time. Thank you we, very much. We, I don't take for granted your being here. I'm absolutely grateful. You are an influential and impactful member of our society as a pastor. Thank you very much. And uh, as, a, as a medical doctor, your, your passion for, uh, for our society shines through. Thank you so Thank much. Thank you so much. Yeah. We wish you all the best. Allow me, Pastor, to turn now to our viewers who are all over the world to say uh, thank you for your support. Um, we appreciate you uh, watching us. Remember, we are a weekly show. Eh? We are out every Monday at 7 a.m. Central African time on YouTube. To ensure that you don't miss out on any of these quality conversations, please go to uh, the YouTube and press on subscribe. Remember to like, remember to share. We've also built a website where all our content sits. Go to our website. We also have uh, links to all our podcasts for the show. Mm -hmm. uh, we view all your comments. Uh, we like your comments uh, below. Suggestions as to who should come on, onto the show. Keep them coming. Thank you for your support. Until next time, cheers to you all.